The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, December 20th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. So, is it a schizoid Pandora station, a poorly organized CD bin at Goodwill, or the weirdest lineup of acts off the main stage at Coachella? Well, you have the Electric Light Orchestra, Yes, Journey, Tupac, Joan Baez, and Pearl Jam. They don't share much, but they will be in the same class for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. It was Tupac who said, let the Lord judge the criminals, and if I die, I wonder if heaven's got a ghetto. And it was Yes who said, in and around the lake, mountains come out of the sky and stand there. Similarly, it was Joan Baez who said, need some of that vagueness now. It's all come back too clearly. Yes, I loved you dearly. And if you're offering me diamonds and rust, I've already paid. And it was ELO who said, I'll tell you once more before I get off the floor. Don't bring me down. But let us all remember and in fact gather and hearken to the words of Pearl Jam, Eddie Vedder, who intoned, Once I saw him on a beach over the sun And on the sand of burners and the limb began in the backside of him he, he got me. He, used, he ends shows with that one. That's the big uh, encore. and It always gets me. The acts, they're just so disparate. It would be as if the Baseball Hall of Fame inducted in the same year Ken Griffey Jr., Mike Piazza, the hip-hop group Third Base, a box of Cracker Jack, the CIA source Curveball, who got us into the Iraq War, and the cast of Pitch Perfect. And they all played in the same All-Star Jam exhibition game. But actually, that'd be cool. I, for one, am heartened with the inclusion of ELO's Jeff Lynn, meaning every last damn Wilbury is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And while I suppose this is sort of irrelevant, it is nice to see a Hall of Famer who has a midriff tattoo with the words, Thug Life. But perhaps I've said too much about Joan Baez's torso. On the show today, I spiel about the most arresting image of the year, but first, there is power in a union, or at least there used to be. Now we talk of ways or paths for Democrats to appeal to the blue collar. There used to be a pretty obvious one. Two syllables. Unions. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. 
Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. So during the campaign, there were a lot of talks about workers, the blue collar, machinists, men who worked with their hands precious little talk of the mechanism that would get these good, hardworking, salt-of-the-earth people actual bigger paychecks, or in some cases, paychecks at all. That thing was unions. Where have unions gone in America as a means of discourse and also as a solution to political problems? Joining me now is Stephen Greenhouse. He's retired from the New York Times. He was a labor and workplace correspondent, but he's still covering the beat. He's working on a book about the future of workers in the U.S. Hello, Mr. Greenhouse. How are you? Great to be here. So did that strike you? Obviously, the Republican is not going to get behind the idea of unions, but did the dearth of actually bringing up unions as a solution to what has been said to be the overweening problem of America that drove the election, did that strike you as somewhat odd? Yes, it struck me somewhat odd, although, you know, Donald Trump really played into, you know, resonated with a lot of, you know, blue collar Americans, especially blue collar whites, because he was, you know, emphasizing their problems of wage stagnation, of the decline of the American dream. He kept talking about how, you know, jobs are going overseas, that free trade packs were encouraging manufacturing jobs to leave. And as a Republican, you would not expect him to really talk up labor unions, especially because most labor unions were hammering him and opposing him day after day. Unions you know, are far weaker than they were 30 and 50 years ago in the United States. They represent just 11% of workers, one out of nine workers. Uh, and then when John F. Kennedy was president you know, 55 years ago, unions represented one in three workers, and they were much more powerful, much more plugged in politically. They, you know, when they spoke the nation listened, uh, and they had much more influence in persuading voters in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan and Ohio and and and, and Missouri on how to vote. And I think one of the one of the reasons Trump won those states is that unions are so much weaker than they used to be. And it used to be the case that you couldn't go against the unions or you had to at least tiptoe it through those states, because even if the majority of voters maybe weren't in a union, they were all connected to a union or they had some union member in their family, or it was just seen as a political suicide to have an anti-union stance in Missouri or in Wisconsin, but no more. And I noticed that a lot of the laws in those states have changed. It's not just the economy dictating if unions rise and fall, it's right-to-work laws. Yeah. So take a state like Wisconsin, which was used to be one of the most progressive, even leftist states in the nation, the state of the La Follette brothers. In the 1950s, 40%, 39% of Wisconsin workers belonged to unions. Now it's plunged to just 8%. And the decline has been hastened by the famous Republican governor, Scott Walker, who has pushed through legislation, not just right-to-work legislation, legislation that, that in effect cripples collective bargaining for public sector workers and has caused many you know, government employees to quit their unions. That really has precipitated this sharp, sharp decline in, in the number of union members in Wisconsin, the power of unions. And we've seen other states, Michigan, Indiana, adopt right-to-work. And now with the Republican governor in Missouri, uh, it's very likely that Missouri is going to enact right to work. Right to work hurts unions because uh, it means that workers in 
at private sector unionized workplaces no longer have to pay any union dues or union fees. And that causes a lot of workers to say, hey, I can get the union to continue to represent me and bargain for me, but I don't have to pay a cent. So, you know, why pay for the milk when you can get it for free? I also want to mention in that statistic or those statistics that you laid on us with where one of nine people are in a union, if you take into account private sector unions, it's much smaller than that, right? It's just 6.6.7%. Yes. One in one in 16 workers. And it used to be, you know, one, you know, more than one in three workers in, in manufacturing, certainly. So it does seem to me that on certain issues, politicians are attached to those issues and the voters feel like your policies caused this situation. I'll give you an example. Hillary Clinton didn't write the 1994 crime bill, but within the African-American community, there are large portions of that community, especially younger people, who blame her and her husband for over-incarceration. They put A plus B plus C, and they say that your policies led to this situation. And yet when it comes to the state of the working class man, it is so clear that Republican policies have gutted the power of the union, which helped the working class man. And yet there isn't a lot of momentum, uh, at least among those uh, would-be union members to say, oh, to blame the Republicans for that. And I wonder if you have a theory about why. I have several theories, Mike. So, you know, remember... Donald Trump said, I love poorly educated Americans. Yes. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of Americans aren't educated enough on these issues and don't understand uh, what's happened. And you know, in many states, people learn very little about the history of America's labor unions and how, yes, they are the folks that brought us the weekend. So Bill Clinton and Hillary are repeatedly blamed for NAFTA. NAFTA helped lead to an exodus of jobs to Mexico. But people forget that it was George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, who negotiated NAFTA right before Bill Clinton came into office. And then Clinton trying to be a good bipartisan president and not, you know, stomping on the president who preceded him, got Congress to pass NAFTA. Uh, Obama wanting to improve relations with um, with Asia and prevent China from becoming dominant in Asia pushed for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And you know, so Trump and other Republicans, many, many uh, blue-collar working-class folks, blame Clinton, blame Obama for these trade deals, where, you know, while Republicans are probably even more in favor of these trade deals than Clinton and Obama. And also, so we had this horrible Great Recession from you know, December 2007 to June 2009. It's been very, very hard for the nation to recover from that horrible recession. And I think a lot of voters wrongly blamed it on Obama. And Obama was pushing for economic stimulus and all sorts of things to increase the nation's ability to come out of the recession. And uh, it's the Republicans in Congress that were opposing that. But now when people say, who's to blame for the wage stagnation? Who's to blame for the not so fast uh, economic expansion? They blame Obama rather than the Republicans. And tying this back to unions, again, if unions represented one in three uh, workers rather than one in nine workers, unions would be uh, you know, much more outspoken and much more listened to in explaining who is really to blame for the wage stagnation, who's really to blame for the slow economic recovery. 
Well, if I could channel my inner Andy Stern or a union leader, I might say something like, well, one reason that Obama is only representing a country with one in nine instead of one in three are policies that Obama himself favored or didn't favor. Like when he came into office, there was the Employee Free Choice Act. And I knew I have a lot of friends who were in business and they voted for the ones that voted for Obama, liked him on a number of issues, but they said there is one thing. If this Employee Free Choice Act goes through, there's going to be so many more unions. Unions, it's going to be terrible, terrible for business. And even though he is a set, he as a senator sponsored it. It was pretty silent as a president. It didn't pass. And as a result, well, I mean, there's a reason it didn't pass. Um, we see some of the consequences of that. How much are Obama policies to blame for there being fewer unions? I don't think he deserves much blame on that. And I often argue with labor people. The Employee Free Choice Act would have made it easier, not far, far easier, but easier for unions to, to organize. Now, workers have to engage and vote by secret ballot, usually after a one or two month campaign where employers pressure them very hard not to join the union. The Employee Free Choice Act would say as long as as soon as a majority, 50.1% of workers sign cards saying they favor a union, presto, you get a union. And employers really don't like that because they say it doesn't give them sufficient opportunity to make their case about why their workplace should not be unionized. So Obama was elected. There was like only this very small window when he had a veto-proof majority of six of 60. So it would have been very, very hard for him to get that enacted anyway. And when he was elected, I think he made the rational decision that I have all this political capital right now. What should I do? And he decided to uh, pursue a longtime dream of many unions and many Americans to move towards uh, more universal health coverage. So he passed Obamacare. And after that, he tried turning to enact the Employee Free Choice Act. He didn't push as hard as he might have, but I think he saw that it probably wasn't going to pass anyway. And some people say, and some union people say in retrospect, he should have pushed to enact the pro the pro labor bill first, the Employee Free Choice Act, and then pushed uh, to enact Obamacare. And I think Obama made the rational decision that if he had pushed for the Employee Free Choice Act first, he may well have lost. He might well have burned up a lot of political economy, political capital before he was able to enact what he thought and many Americans thought was even more important uh, law that you know went far to establish uh, more universal health coverage for all. Okay, I buy that. I sympathize with the straits Obama was in. And yet, eliminating unions seems to me, does it seem to you, to be much more important to Republicans than preserving unions are to Democrats? Mike, you're absolutely right on that. The Republican coalition is business folks, and they don't like unions, and they want to weaken unions, squash unions, kill unions. And then many conservatives, you know, uh, evangelical conservatives, ideological conservatives, people like Grover Norquist, they see that unions are a pillar of the Democratic Party. And they're happy to weaken, to do what they can to further hobble unions because they know that will help continue, you know, Republican, you know, domination in Congress and various various state legislators. So they're all gung ho for measures to weaken unions. So as you know, so in Kentucky now, for the first time since the 19th century, uh, the Assembly is in Republican control. So now Kentucky is going to pass a right to work law. So as soon as Republicans get the trifecta and control the Senate, the Assembly and the governor's mansion in a state, they go right away to enact right to work to weaken weaken unions. Increasingly, the Democrats are realizing that for them to rebound as a party, 
it's important to help labor unions grow and expand again. Still, you know, even when if unions are stronger, union leaders and unions are not, you know, are not often uh, aggressive enough or smart enough. And remember, you know, three of the nation's largest unions were very early and important backers of Hillary. But I think the unions were shocked, shocked, shocked that Trump won. They were confident that they had they were delivering the Middle West for Hillary. And they were mortified, astounded that Hillary lost in all those states. And in ways, you know, unions are realizing that, hey, we were not as in touch as we should have been with the blue collar white working class in, in those states. Well, speaking of the industrial Midwest, I'll, uh, this is from Tracy Sharp, who was quoted in the Wall Street Journal. She's the president of the State Policy Network, which is a range of free market think tanks throughout the United States. She points out that in Wisconsin, union membership is down 133,000 since 2010, the year before Scott Walker overhauled the union rules there. So down 133,000 and Donald Trump won by less than 30,000. In Michigan, public union membership, public union membership, is down 34,000 since 2012, the year before Governor Rick Snyder's right-to-work law kicked in. Mr. Trump's margin was 11,000. Even if you're getting your people out, if there aren't as many people, it's not going to work. The 30,000 decline in union membership in in Michigan, I don't know if if unions had 30,000 more people, whether that would have closed the 11,000 vote gap. Maybe yes, maybe no. Right, they don't get every vote. clearly, if unions were as powerful as they were 30 years ago, Hillary would have easily won won these three key states. So is it too late? Can unions either become smarter politically, hold more sway over Democrats, or actually, I think the key would be to increase their membership. Maybe a fourth key would be convince people who aren't in them that they are the mechanism to address the ills of the uh, blue-collar white working class. Is it too late for unions? Mike, I think in ways it might be too late for unions. Why do I say that? Partly because, you know, especially in the private sector, they represent just one in 16 workers, whereas they used to represent like 35%. It's not an easy time, but you look at the fight for 15, which is inarguably the most successful labor effort in terms of mobilizing people in the United States in many years. It's been totally unsuccessful in forming a traditional labor union. And I imagine the fight for 15 could get a majority of workers at 100 McDonald's to vote for a union in the next week if they really wanted, but it's going to be incredibly hard to get McDonald's or its franchisees to agree to a contract. So they're trying to figure out another way to form a union-like labor organization. And one of the big problems that some of these newfangled labor organizations like the Fight 15 face is that they're spending you know millions of dollars to try to help these workers, but they don't have any dues payments coming in from the workers. So they're trying to lift the workers, but they're not getting any dues payment coming back to finance these innovative union-like advocacy structures. I'm sounding like a damn professor there, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Stephen Greenhouse, for decades, covered labor and the workplace for the New York Times. He's writing a book on the future of workers. Will that book be called The Great Disgruntlement? I, I'm thinking of calling it raising our voice, but uh, all right. Thank you, Stephen. Telling you, telling yeah. you more than I should. <laughs> That's it's good. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, Mike. Be well. Thanks.
The assassination of Andrei Karlov, the Russian ambassador to Turkey, is on the front page of every newspaper in my city, and my city doesn't have such a big stake in the clash between the two great Eurasian powers. It is there because the photos are so instantly iconic. Luck, skill of the photographer, and terrible happenstance conspired to record an assassination moments before during and after the fact. The assassin, who Turkish authorities identify as a 22-year-old police officer, Mevlut Altintis, began shouting these words the moment Ambassador Karlov slumped to the ground of an Ankara art gallery. God is great. Don't forget Aleppo. Don't forget Syria. As long as our lands are not safe, you will not be safe. That is from a video which seems to have been taken from a mounted camera that didn't move as the scene played out in front of it. At moments, the gunman receded from the frame and then came back into the frame. The camera doesn't pan. Perhaps its operator dove to safety. Now, there's another longer video. It lasts about a minute 45. Wow, is it something. We see the gunman behind the ambassador. Speeches are being given at this exhibit of Russian and Turkish photographs. And he looks, and spectators said they thought he was just security. He seems like the usual security guard. Dark suit, white shirt, short hair. But he does fidget a little, and he changes his position. He walks across the room. He touches his face. He touches it again. If you don't know what you're looking for, you wouldn't even be looking. But then suddenly he jabs his hand inside his suit jacket and a gun emerges and he begins to fire. The ambassador winces and we know that moment from that earlier video. That one began the second the ambassador was shot. And whoever was filming this video takes cover and we see feet and the floor and chaos and the feed. But it is the still images that are so fascinating. We have in one the gunman still armed with a finger raised as he screams defiantly. We heard his words from that video. In another shot, we see his black suit jacket flaring out. In the moving pictures, we see that it happens, but it doesn't register. In the still images, the moment has some additional power. And his mode of dress is positively Tarantino-esque. The black suit, the skinny tie. And the lighting, it's an art gallery. The walls and floors are brilliant white. Some onlookers said at first they thought it was staged. At least that's the impression that the AP photographer on the scene originally had. Burhan Ozbilisi supplied us with those images. He thought it was an art piece, but then he realized what it was and he still clicked away. When asked why he did it, he said, even if I get hit and injured or killed, I'm a journalist. I have to do my work. I could run away without taking any photos, but I wouldn't have a proper answer if people later ask me, why didn't you take pictures? Today, coincidentally, I interviewed the granddaughter of Abraham Zapruder. That interview will air next week. And we got to talking about these very photos that I'm talking about right here. And she said that a thought flashed through her mind. She said, this is another version of the Zapruder film. The repercussions of this act, of this assassination, could be large, but there is an argument that it won't be because both Russia and the Turkish government have reason not to let it get in the way of their agreement over Syria. And their agreement is to let Syria become the killing floor of their mutual ambitions. The Russians backed Assad and the Turks prioritized weakening the Kurds as opposed to fully backing the rebellion. Many Turkish citizens sympathized with the rebels. 
They loathe the Assad regime. They blamed Russia for propping up a dictator who turned Turkey into a home for over two and a half million Syrian refugees. When I was there two years ago, on all the busier street corners of Istanbul, refugees congregated. They begged, they huddled together, they slept under blankets. And all of this was for nothing. The rebellion failed. The object of the rebellion was not deposed, and the Russians had bullied the Turks away from the aid of their fellow Muslims. How the story of this assassination will play in Turkey seems to be largely based on how the pictures play in state-controlled Turkish media. Already, the Erdogan government is defining the shooter as a terrorist. He's an assassin, sure. And if every assassin's a terrorist, then I guess he's a terrorist, but he was directing his bullets against a government official. The government official was unarmed and out of a war zone, but it seems like a clearer case of retribution than the usual terrorist act of, say, driving a truck into a large crowd of German or French civilians. However these images play out, whatever importance they have, they have an undeniable power. They're uncomfortably riveting. And it's impossible as members of this species to look, but also to look away. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson. There are some who say she makes me want to weep and want to die just when she said we try loving, touching, squeezing each other when I'm all alone by myself. She's out with someone else, loving, touching, squeezing each other. Chris Berube, just producers, tearing me apart every, every day. He's tearing me apart. Oh, what can I say? He's tearing me apart. It won't be long, yes, till Steve Lichtai's alone. When Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, lover, oh, he hasn't come home because he's loving who he's touching. He's squeezing another. He's tearing you, Andy Bowers, apart every, every day. He's tearing the chief content officer of the Panoply Network apart. What can he say? Because he's loving, touching another. Now it's your turn, girl, to cry. The gist. Na, 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 na. Oomperoo, Peru. Na, na, na. And thanks for listening.